0: Morning. Turn with me your Bibles to um, Ecclesiastes chapter five. Kids in the Bibles that we've given you, our passage begins on page five fifty-five, and we will be in Ecclesiastes five verses ten through Ecclesiastes six verse nine. Five ten through six nine. If you got a. Uh, um, listening guide on the back table. You'll already see the sermon points on the top there for you so that um, you can kind of understand where we're going. <clears throat> Let's begin today by reading the passage and then I'll make a few comments before we begin. First, uh, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10. This is God's word. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. In what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go." And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, in sickness, in anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, for the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot." Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth Possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his life, years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is God's word. It's good to understand the organization of this passage before we jump into it and so if we divide this passage up into paragraphs into the paragraphs that we've got there we'll see that this is a a a chiasm and so what that means is the first paragraph and the last paragraph have repeated themes or a similar theme or repeated words and then the second paragraph and the second to last paragraph have repeated words or themes and then the middle paragraph stands alone for instance, here we have in in for in Ecclesiastes. I can keep wanting to say First Corinthians. I don't know, but Ecclesiastes 5, uh, 10 through 12, we see this: uh, He loves money, will not be satisfied. And then 6, 7, and 9. At the end, all the toil is for a man's mouth. yet his appetite is not satisfied so you have themes of vanity that's repeated there and then talks of appetite and full stomachs in both paragraphs and so those fit together and so those are kind of the bookends of the passage and then in 5:13 through 17 we see this grievous evil mentioned grievous evil is mentioned twice in 5:13 to 17 you see it there in verse 13 and you see it again down in verse 16 and so if you look at verse, it's at chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it starts off with, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lasts heavy on mankind. A man uh, to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. And so you have these two bookends inside the bookends of grievous evil and there's talk of a mother's womb and there's talk of a stillborn child there's talk of a son and a hundred children and reference to birth and reference to death in those passages so those two go together In right smack dab in the middle of our passage in ecclesiastes five eighteen through 20 you have uh, between these two grievous evils you have the preacher say behold i have seen what to be good and fitting in this life and so um, this is a literary device that focuses the reader's attention onto what the 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 writers thinks is important and so these main ideas the main idea sits in the middle of the passage and everything else around it points to it like big flashing arrows and so if kids if i was giving if i were asking you what kind of sandwich you're having today for lunch You wouldn't say, Oh, I'm having a wheat sandwich, or I'm having a sourdough sandwich. No, I don't, the type of sandwich you have isn't characterized by, defined by the bread that you're eating. Or if I asked you, What kind of sandwich are you having? You wouldn't say, Oh, I'm having lettuce, a lettuce sandwich. No, lettuce goes on it, but that's not what characterizes the sandwich. What makes the sandwich and what defines the sandwich is what's in the middle. Right? What kind of meat you're having? I'm having a ham sandwich that happens to be on wheat bread with lettuce and tomato on it. And so what defines the whole sandwich is what's in the middle. And so this passage directs us to what the main idea is. And the main idea is found in verses 18 through 20. And everything else around it points to 18 through 20 and describes 18 through 20. Describes the problems associated with it. But the preacher wants us to focus on what's in 18 and 20. So rather than preaching the passage from start to finish, uh, uh, it'll seem like we're jumping around, but we're starting out with the ends and going to the middle, and then we'll get to our final point in the middle. And so the first point I'd like for us to consider today, the preacher would like for us to consider, is if you seek the things of this life, you will not be satisfied. If you seek the things of this life under the sun, you will not be satisfied. He says it's vanity, verse 10, 5.10. He who loves money or wealth will never be satisfied by it. Kids, to be satisfied by something means that, that, that something will make your wishes come true. Or, or it will do what you expect it to do for you. And so that's what means to be satisfied by something. But man who six seven says man who works to be filled will never, ma- man who works to be filled will never be satisfied. Will never have his appetite satisfied. Why is this? Well, the preacher tells us because in uh, in five ten and five eleven, because the more wealth you have, the more people want some of it. The, the more money you have, the more people it takes to, to uh, manage it. The more people it takes to, the, the more resources you have or the more possessions you have, the more people you're dependent upon to take care of it. And so more money, more problems, right? More money, more payments. And so I've got some examples today. Forgive me for, uh, this is, it has a lot of, of real life examples in it. My grandfather, when he died, he had this very nice watch, and um, it was a great watch, and he gave it to me. It was mine when he died, and it was a status symbol. I loved it. I I just wanted to, I just couldn't wait, you know, and so I was so excited. Well, about a year later, it stops keeping bad time, and so I take it to the jeweler, and the jeweler's like, yeah, you need to get it cleaned, you know, because these watches require to be cleaned every couple of years. And I'm like, okay, well, when can I pick it up? Oh, no, we can't do it. We have to send it to Switzerland, and the whole process will take about six weeks. And, uh, oh, and I must remind you, I must warn you, that it's going to cost you five or $600 to clean it like this. Every two years. <clears throat> and so I can't afford, I can't justify having a watch that you got to spend six hundred dollars on every two years it's dumb and so i didn't want to hold on to that because i didn't want my sons to be burdened by this sentimental thing oh well it's dad's watch i want to i want to keep it i need to hold on to it it's irresponsible for me not to hold on to this thing and then they figure out either one it's a status symbol that i might have to pay six hundred dollars to maintain or feel guilty because they got rid of it and so We had some medical bills that we had to pay for, and we sold it. We got rid of it. We just were done with it. Forget it. It doesn't make any sense. Um, My first boss had a bunch of horses, and his wife and kids were into English riding competitions, and they they had more horses than they could keep at their place or they could ride at one time. And so they had to get some land where they kept the horses about 20 minutes away. And they had to hire people to ride the horses and feed them and care for them because they couldn't get there every day or they weren't there early in the morning. And so they had to hire people to take care of the horses. And uh, when he got rid of the horses, he told me, he said, I strongly recommend you not invest in a hobby that eats while you sleep. (laughs) And so when was it good to have horses? It was good to have horses when they were there, when they were riding them, when you're caring for them, when, when you're with them, right? That's the joy of the toil right there. That's the creation mandate. You are, you are subduing the earth. You are caring for God's animals. You're caring for his creation. You're reflecting the character of God. You're imaging our creator. But they were paying someone to do that part of the job. What advantage did the owner of the horses have? What did they get out of it? Nothing. They got nothing out of it. Only when they were actually with the horses did they actually get the joy out of them. Verse 511. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And so only when he was able to enjoy them himself was he able to... um, enjoy God's gift, but he's hiring out people to enjoy God's gift. Then if that's the case, why didn't he just do that full time? Well, because you got to make money to uh, do this. You couldn't afford to do that. He had to work to pay for it. And so with all of these things, you feel guilty that you aren't able to enjoy it because you have to pay for it and you worry about it. You have to make concessions and provisions for it. So who is fulfilling the task of enjoying the toil? The hired worker, the laborer, 512. He's the one that's enjoying the labor. He's the one that's enjoying the gift of God, not you. He's the one that plays with the horses every day. He enjoys the toil and at the end of the day, after a hard day's work, he goes home and he sleeps easy. He rests well because he put in a hard day of work. And he doesn't have to worry about vet bills. He doesn't have to worry about insurance premiums on stables or property taxes. And he'll show up tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock and do the whole thing cheerfully all over again, fulfilling the creation mandate. And he enjoys his food um, and his toil when he's not there. He enjoys it all. Yes, but we've heard the saying it's based on a proverb that a fool and his money are soon parted. So maybe if you're not a fool, well, wise people can do this right. Wise people can make money doing it. Wise people won't fall into this trap. <clears throat> wise people can figure out how to do all this stuff and not fall into this problem. But 6.8, look at 6.8. 6.8 tells us what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? So whether you're wise or a fool, it doesn't matter. There's no advantage in this situation for either. You're still missing the boat. Your appetite will always drive you to more stuff. And your work will keep you from it. So that it will never ever satisfy you. It's a never ending cycle. If you choose to serve your appetite, you will not find rest and satisfaction that you're looking for. Either with stuff as you worry about how to pay for it or how to keep from losing money on it or how to justify it or how to make sure it's ready to go when you actually want to use it. Even with your physical appetite, 512. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. I have scientific proof of this. This thing on my wrist, my family's tired of hearing about it, but they'll tell you how you rested and how recovered you are for the next day. I find that if I eat a simple meal, not a ton of rich food, I rest and recover very, very well. But if I eat a lot of rich food and a lot of sugar, I don't sleep, I don't rest well at all. The next day you just feel like junk. The laborer, whether he eats little or much, he rests well, but not the rich man with his belly full of rich food. So God calls us in his word to find our satisfaction, not in the things of this world, but in him and what he provides. But he uses the things of this world as as an analogy, as a symbol or an illustration to show what he alone can provide and how he can satisfy us. For instance, <clears throat> Psalm eighty-one, fifteen: Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would satisfy you. Psalm 90, verse 4. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Psalm 145 16 you open your hand you satisfy the desires of every living thing Isaiah 55 1 through 3 in verse 11 come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has money no money come and buy and eat come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. I will satisfy your desire even in scorched places. So in this passage, what God, God is saying, what God provides satisfies, what God provides that satisfies us, you don't need money for. God will provide us in ways that truly satisfies us, that money will never, ever satisfy us. And it can satisfy us so much that it can satisfy us in tough, barren times in life, even in the scorched places of life. Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the longing soul, and the longing soul he fills with good things. Matthew 5, 6, blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Delighting in money and wealth will never, ever satisfy you, but God instead invites us to find our delight in him, which will never, ever disappoint us. The second thing the preacher wants to point out to us today is our second point uh, is our is our second um, topic. It is evil not to enjoy one's life. It is evil not to enjoy one's life. We see that in five thirteen through seventeen, and in six one through six. It's evil not to enjoy one's life. Now that seems like a pretty strong thing to say. It's evil not to enjoy one's life until. We look at our little chiasm, right, where it talks about a grievous evil, a grievous evil. And in 6, 1 and 2, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So the preacher talks first uh, uh, about the uh, about the man who uh, um, who uh, has riches and it's kept by by its owner in verses thirteen through seventeen. So the man keeps all the riches. He doesn't spend them. He hoards them. He's hoarding them, and he. He's just keeping, he's just accumulating and accruing over time, over time. Saving for the rainy day and possibly thinking, well, when I get this much, once I get to this point, then, then I will begin to enjoy it. But the problem with this, the preacher says, is that you don't know that possessions are fleeting and you don't know when they're going to be taken away from you. You don't know when they'll be ripped away from you. We keep coming back to. Uh, that passage in Luke where where the, uh, the man says, I know what I'll do. I'll rip down these barns and I'll build new ones and I'll say to my soul, relax, enjoy. You've got plenty of grain stored up. He says, you don't know when your life will be demanded of you. And so possessions are fleeting and they're uncertain. And like in verse 514, this man's riches were lost in a bad venture. Now, this doesn't mean that he made a bad... that he invested in some get-rich-quick scheme. Maybe he just lost money in a deal that just didn't pay off. It just didn't work. I'm reminded of Job's plight. Job had seven sons and three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 300 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And they were all gone in an afternoon. You may say, "Yeah, but John, that's a very drastic story." Well, yeah, they're drastic stories to get your attention. We don't have to suffer loss at that level. We don't have those types of resources, and so when we lose it, it it is critical. It's important to us. It hurts, and so we have these drastic stories in the Bible to show us that the stakes are high in this. Our man in verse in five thirteen. He lost it all, and he was father of a son, and he had nothing to care for him with or share with his son. And while Job had a perspective, had a good perspective and worshipped the Lord, saying, Naked I came into the world, and naked I'll depart, may the name of the Lord be praised, this man did not say that. He had no perspective. His security and his satisfaction were wrapped up in his bank balance. But he didn't realize that naked he came into this world, and naked he will depart. And therefore, he has zero to show for his toil. And every day he eats in darkness, 517, I think. Yeah, 517, he eats in darkness. Not because he can't pay his light bill, but because he lives in bitterness. He lives in confusion because he was counting on his wealth to provide joy that never came. He invested in a bad venture. Bad ventures can take many forms. I know a person who planned for retirement very carefully. They hired financial advisors to guide them through the process. Do this, then do that, and then if you work one more year, then you'll be able to do all that you want to do. And so it was put in place. The house was bought in the retirement golf course community, and it was just the way they wanted it. Decorated exactly the way they wanted it. Finally, they could do what they wanted to do and didn't have to count on anyone else. They could do it exactly the way they wanted. And everything was going exactly according to plan. Ready to spend the remainder of their days in golfing and traveling bliss. Until their back started hurting that November. November. And at Thanksgiving, they were diagnosed with terminal cancer. And they left that house the Thanksgiving weekend, and they never, ever spent the night in it again. They spent the next month or so trying to leverage the wealth that they did have to see if they could find a cure. But it was clear that there was no cure for this. And so the next five months were spent dying. So the remainder of their days were lived out as a guest in a relative's house with low-grade bitterness and disappointment. It was a bad venture. This is important. Listen, hear me out on this. Trying to recalibrate your understanding of joy in that day is impossible. We've got to do that work now. We must do that work now while things are still good so that the Lord may satisfy our desires in the scorched earth of suffering that is sure to come for every single one of us. It's coming. I know another person who liked to travel but was very frugal in life toward his family and others. He wasn't very generous, but he justified it by saying, well, but they can take care of themselves, but when I die, they will have a lot. They will have, they will be in great shape. And so <clears throat> he hired attorneys and consultants and to make these elaborate plans to ensure that the family would not be burdened with significant tax implications and all of this uh, when they got it. Long story short, I could talk about this for hours, but long story short, No one was as wise as they thought they were and mistakes were made. Things that should have happened didn't. But it's too late to change it once he's gone, dead and gone. Over 1.7 million dollars was lost. Just gone. There was no one to get it back from. It's vapor. It's gone. Some stranger has it and nobody knows where. And nobody knows who and there's no recourse for it. And those who banked on that money for decades are playing out their golden years in a far less glamorous life of ease than they expected, for sure. And our man here, as our man here in verse in 517, they are vexed and angry about it. It's a bad venture this brothers and sisters is the evil under the sun a man to whom God gives wealth possessions and honor look at one. Look at, uh, wealth possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires but he doesn't enjoy them a stranger enjoys them instead this is vanity and a grievous evil But John, you're burying the lead here. I've read verse 6-2. You're telling, because there's something you've left out of verse 6-2. And it is that God is the one who does not give them the power to enjoy it. So why is it a grievous evil if God is the one who doesn't give them the power or the ability to enjoy it? God generously gives, but to those he generously gives, many fail to realize that it comes from his hand. This is evil. This is why we see in Romans 1, the wrath of God coming on those who are disobedient. Why? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So they began to serve the creature rather than the creator. Or to put it another way, they began to value treasure the gift over the giver. And their hearts were darkened and it leads to a deeper and deeper hopeless spiral. But this isn't just a danger for unbelievers. Consider Moses' words to uh, Israel in Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 11. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Okay, so we're convinced that this is a danger for believers to uh, who forget the giver. But this bitterness and this and this uh, anger and vexation certainly that doesn't apply to to everyone i mean doesn't it just apply to the miserly like the ebenezer screws who keep scrooge who keeps everybody far away because he doesn't want them in his business he didn't want to give them anything he doesn't want to be occupied with trivial pursuits and he just wants to focus on money and you just make a bunch of money isn't that who's the vexed one I mean, surely we can enjoy this life with, without getting this point right, right? I mean, we can live a very full life with family and grandkids to share it with. certainly looks like they're enjoying life. But look at the startling comments there in 6.3. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with good things... And he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Okay, so what does this no burial thing mean? I, I think what he's talking about is like a Christian burial as we would know it. <clears throat> a burial in which there is no praising God. There's no perspective. There's no gratitude for the life that God has provided. No confidence in what's to come. It's not a burial in hope. So if you don't have a life of perspective that God alone can give and the capacity and power to enjoy what God has given, then it's better to be a stillborn child, a stillborn child where you don't even know the sex of the baby. It's referred to as it. It's not a he or a she. It's it. It. It comes in vanity and goes in darkness In darkness. Its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. It comes as a vanity, a vapor, a whisper, goes into, goes into darkness and is forever named or known, uh, never named or known. It will find more rest than that man. The man who has all the pictures year after year of his entire family in their white shirts on, Destin, on the Destin beach, you know and or the picture of him and his wife with the grandkids on the um, uh, on the couch with you know grandkids all over it on the mantel. on the mantle the couple who spends their time visiting grandkids and going to every little league game and recital who's respected in the community and who has wealth and possessions and honor yet doesn't enjoy it to the glory of God and who is mindful of him that life is a grievous evil. That life is a grievous evil. So, if this is true, if what the preacher says is true, then how would this affect our evangelism? I think about Paul in Acts 17 when he's at the area area area, 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 area you know what I'm talking about. Look it up. Well, Paul says, hey, there's a God you need. You know, I see that you have a, 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 a statue to the uh, worship the unknown God. Well, there is a God you need to know. Let me tell you about him. And he says in 1724, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's giving you everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they shall seek God and they shall find, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So what Paul's saying is God made everything and provides for mankind with everything so that you may seek and know God. And so God has shown you, rich person, his power and his incredible generosity in providing for you the way he has. Therefore, acknowledge him and honor him as God, the generous giver. But how do we typically treat rich people? I don't know. Do we think, oh, they've got their riches. They won't listen to us. They don't need God. We've got our riches in heaven. They've got theirs here. Move on. It's not going to work out anyway. Or do we think, ah, they're so rich. They, they don't even need God. And so we secretly comfort ourselves as we consider their end. Or do we try to get something out of them? Possibly kind of like laundering their earthly mammon. You know, thinking that somehow if they give it to you or if they give it to the church or if they give it to some worthy cause, then, then God is pleased with them. And so then, then they're doing a good, their good deed on, um, uh, in honoring uh, the Lord. But think of the book of Ecclesiastes. Think of the traps and snares for the rich rich person, their legion. We've read where this won't satisfy them. We've read where there's a danger in trusting in it, and you can't build anything that will outlast you. We've read that it's fleeting, it's vanity, it's chasing after the wind. We should be saying, I want you to know where your wealth has come from. And God has been very, very generous to you. And through his generosity toward you, he has shown you who he is. He created all things and he's graciously given them to you. All the things you have, even the ability to amass wealth, um, uh, which is what we saw in Deuteronomy 8. Even the ability to amass wealth, God has given you that. Don't get hung up on the gift, look to the giver. And we see that wrath is coming on those who refuse to acknowledge him as the giver. Listen to him. He has things he wants to show you. He has things he wants to tell you about himself. He has things that he wants to tell you about about this world and about you. You can't cut deals with God. God, You don't know when your life will be demanded of you. You may have a lot of people answer to you in this world, but God will not answer to you. You will stand before him face to face and have to give an account of your life. This is a lonely end apart from God. The preacher tells us that, but you still have breath, and so there's hope for you. You can be forgiven, for God has done something far more generous for you than giving you the wealth that you are placing your trust in. He sent his son to earth to show you what he's like and to live perfectly in your place and die the death that your sin, that your grievous evil against the Lord deserves. But Jesus was raised from the dead as proof that he is who he said he was, that he is holy God and holy man. The only one who could stand in your place and take your punishment on himself and provide you a righteousness that you can never ever attain. And because he's holy God, he's the only one who could pay an eternal penalty that is due one who offends an eternal God this is a gift that i want you to enjoy you accept it by turning from your sin and trusting in him and when you do so you will you will not only begin to live a life of appreciation and gratitude toward the god who created you but one day you will finally be satisfied the way that you have spent your entire life and fortune to seek but not found And you will stand before him and you will realize that you are created to be satisfied in him and him alone. And when you do that, the things of this world grow strangely dim. And we will begin to see things as they really are. So the preacher tells us how to enjoy this life, which is our third point. Enjoy God and his gifts moment by moment. Look at 5:18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one and toils under the sun for the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This protects us from loving the gift more than the giver. I think we see this in verse uh, 19 where it says, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. When we accept our lot, we acknowledge that God has given us what we need and he has reasons for giving us what he's given us. We don't make the mistake of six, seven, where we're toiling for our mouths or thinking, I owe, I owe, it's off to work, I go. Instead, we see that we're reflecting God's image in our work and we find joy in it. This approach protects us from falling prey to materialism because we know it's fleeting and it will not satisfy us. These things, this keeps us from falling into debt because we aren't chasing things that are incapable of meeting our needs, desiring more upon more upon more upon more. And this enables us to be generous because we know from where all we have comes. We're aware of how generous he's been with us. And so we mirror his image by generously giving to others freely. You have received freely. You give God joyfully provides for us and so we find joy in giving to others. We don't see it as our resources are depleting. We see it as others are benefiting and others are others are increasing. When we find our joy in our toil and in our eating and drinking that God supplies, we learn to be content in all circumstances. Which is what our New Testament reading was talking about in 1 Timothy 6. In trying to explain a verse like um, 520, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. It seems to be saying that if you live life in this way, the, God, the way that God commands, where you're just finding joy in the toil and joy in your daily moment-by-moment um, activities, you don't have to look back at specific mountaintop experiences. You don't have to... Um, bust your hump trying to uh, to uh, go on these um, um, grand vacations or make these lasting incredible memories far and away you know um, hither and yon no instead they all begin to run together because god has given you a joyful life god has given you a joyful life every day and your life is Filled with a base level of joy and contentment and laughter in all aspects of life. That doesn't mean you won't have difficulty, but a deep-seated satisfaction and contentment that comes in Christ, in Christ alone. This is how we reflect God's character in the day-to-day operations. Do you think that God looked more forward to the seventh day than he did the first? I think God's working going, man, I can't wait to get to can't wait to get to Saturday. Whew. Been a hard week. No, do you think he he liked the third day? He was he he treasured the third day over the fifth day? No, every single one of them was marked by him saying, It is good. It is good. Wherever he was, it is good. Whatever he put his hand to do, it was good. So brothers and sisters, whether we're working or drinking or shoveling snow or shoveling mulch or vacationing or washing dishes or paying bills or mowing the grass or buying clothes or eating macaroni and cheese or riding a bike, it is good. It is good. For this is what we have put our hand to. This is God's gift to us. Let us enjoy it for what it is and find joy in the moment. This is the chief end of man, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the simple pleasures of life that we confess that we are quick to look past Or experience them and get a joy in the moment and go, okay, what's next? But Father, you have shown us that moment by moment, you give us what we need. Thank you for your generosity toward us in daily life as we've considered in our confession of faith. But also we thank you for the generosity you have shown us in Christ to give us eyes to see your hand and give us eyes to see and be satisfied in you by faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would buoy our hopes and when we think about what's next, our minds are, drift, are, are drawn heavenward and we think about that day when we see you finally face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.